Welcome to another episode of The Examined Athlete. I'm Clay Reichenbach. Today, my guest is Charles Austin. And sit down and listen to this man's accomplishments. Charles is an Olympic gold medalist in the high jump. He won the gold medal in Atlanta in 1996. He's a three-time Olympian. He's a three-time world champion, a nine-time United States champion, an NCAA champion, a member of the USA Track and Field Hall of Fame, and he's the current American and Olympic high jump record holder. He's held the American record in the high jump for 30 years and held the Olympic record for 25 years. And what I'm really starting to enjoy about these conversations is the differences in great performers. It's very difficult to speak in absolutes when speaking about human performance because there is not one path to the top of the mountain. There's not one mentality that will get you there. Each of our paths are different. Each of our mentalities are different. And I think you'll find Charles really demonstrates that. Clearly, Charles has unique physical ability, but I think his mentality is equally rare. Here's a man that had enormous obstacles in his way, but you'll find that he won't spend any time lingering on those obstacles. That's rare, and that's something I really admire. We walk through Charles' journey from start to finish. I think you'll enjoy that. We talk about growing up in a single-family home as the youngest of 10 children. We talk about the love for his father, even though his father was not a big part of his life. We talk about his mentality a lot about focusing on what he could control, about intrinsic motivation, about ignoring outside expectations and outside motivation. We talk about him losing his way in college and then how he found his way back. We talk about his knee surgery that doctors said he'd never come back from. And then he came back and not only won the Olympic gold medal in Atlanta, but he won two more world championships after that. I really enjoyed Charles. I enjoyed his perspective. I enjoyed listening to his story. Charles, I just want to thank you so much for sharing with us. Thank you for being honest. Thank you for walking through your journey. Ladies and gentlemen, the great Charles Austin. All right, Charles. Well, thank you for joining me, man. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for welcoming me to your gym, to your city here. I like being face-to-face, so I appreciate you doing this for me. I'll admit, prior to me researching you, I kind of thought of the gold medal, and that's really all I thought of. Mm -hmm. And then I got into this research process, and your accomplishments are quite substantial. I don't want to embarrass you, man, but you're a bad dude. And so I want to start... By just kind of rolling through some of these accomplishments and and ask you kind of what you thought about it back then and think Mm -hmm. about it now. So you're a three-time Olympian, Olympic gold medalist, three-time world champion, nine-time United States champion, NCAA champion, USA track and field Hall of Famer, current American and Olympic high jump record holder. Both of those have held for about 30 years. What I want to know is, what do you think 18-year-old Charles, who really hadn't even found the high jump yet, would have said if I told him at the time that that's what his future looked like? Well, uh, I would have told you you're crazy because uh, high jumping wasn't something that I wanted to do. Once I started 
my senior year, it was just some friends talking me into coming out. You know, we were graduating and they were like, hey, just come and hang out, you know, on the track team. And at first I was like, no, I don't have time for that. And they kept bugging me, bugging me. And so finally I decided to go out. But uh, at that point, it was just to have fun and and hopefully figure out how I could get to college. And fortunately, that year I jumped 611, got two scholarship offers. Uh, the funny thing, coming out of high school, my, my desire was to play basketball. And that year we had a really stacked team, but we didn't do very well. So um, started high jumping. At the end of the year, McNeese State came in and offered me a scholarship. Uh, it was so funny because they drove me up. They came to Van Black, picked me up, drove me back to McNeese State on a, a visit. And when I got there, I had a talk with the track coach. And he was like, after we have our meeting, the basketball coach wants to talk to you. I was like, what? Okay, where did that come from? So we had the meeting, and uh, after that, one of the coaches from the basketball team came, got me from the track coach's office, sitting there talking to the the basketball coach. He was like, hey, we're going to take you down to the gym and with someone else and let y'all do some stuff on the court, and we just want to watch. We heard you can play, and we just want to see what, what you can do. Went down to the gym, got on the court with Joe Dumars, yeah, really. Where's Joe Pistons. Dumars from? He 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 went to McNeese State. He was with the Pistons at the time, and so they put me on the court with him, and for a while, and they all just watched. He went off. They were talking, and uh, finally, the coach came over. It was like, "Hey, we want to offer you a full basketball scholarship." Wow. <laughs> I was like, "Okay, interesting," but um, I didn't accept it uh, because it was far from home. I didn't know if I want to be that far from home. And plus, Texas State, which was Southwest Texas, came into the picture. You know, once I came here, I was like, okay, this is the place for me to be. So I came here on a track scholarship. Well, let me back you up a little bit. I want to go back to the very beginning, because as I'm reading your story, it doesn't appear like the road was paved for you. It appears like you had to prepare yourself for what I would say was a pretty difficult road. And so let's go back to Van Vleck. I looked it up. It's tiny. It still has only 1,800 people in it. So I don't know what it had when you were growing up. 880, I think. So there's no one there. I can't imagine there was a, a track coach, much less a high jump coach. But go back to when you're growing up. You're the youngest of 10 kids, yes. which I can't even imagine what's that like. What was life like in the Austin household growing up? You know, I grew up in a single parent household. Uh, my mom, she was a maid. Uh, I'm the young, like you say, the youngest of 10. But we were a very close-knit family. Not very much money in the house. Of course, we had government assistance. But I never grew up with the mindset that I was poor or I didn't have this, I didn't have that. You know, life was great. It was easy. I didn't have the nice clothing and nice shoes. My first time ever having a leather pair of shoes was when I got to college. <laughs> Where does that mindset come from that everything's great when maybe you don't have the resources other ha well, others had? 
I'm a realist, and, and I was in my head. I was just happy to be alive and happy to have a chance. So that was just how I, I always looked at things, and even to this day, I don't sit there and dwell on the negative. You give me life and health, I can make anything happen from there. Well, I want to dig in on that mindset because I think it's admirable. One of the things I read in your book, you mentioned you're from a single parent household, is that you say you didn't know your dad, but you still love him. Oh, of course. Which I want you to explain that to me because I think that's maybe similar to what you were just talking about, your mindset. Well, you know, I didn't see my dad growing up very much at all, but that's my dad. He's played a part in giving me life. So how can you not love him? <laughs> and and I never held it against him that he wasn't around. Hey, he had a life as well. And he was doing what he felt he needed to do. So I never look at it at a way where I was knocking him or it made me mad or I felt I was missing out on this or that. Of course, you want your parents in your life. You know, I would go to games and see all the other dads around. And, yeah, that was that could get tough because that's what you want. But at the same time, it is what it is. You know, I'm here. I have a chance. I'm alive. I'm healthy. And, and it's my life at the end of the day that I'm accountable for. You say, how could you not? I would probably challenge you and say that you're rare, that most kids probably would be somewhat resentful. But your mindset is different. I'd say you're rare in many ways than one. <laughs> Obviously, athletically, you're rare, but I think what we'll get in today is your mentality. And it sounds like from a very young age, you were different. Yeah. That, and, and my mentality is what has gotten me to the point where I am today, having that I feel strong mentality and, and understanding, like I was saying, my life is in my hands. Uh, you know, these outside factors really don't matter. Uh, and it never really mattered to me because I knew I had control when it was all said and done. I take what God blessed me with and I make the most of it. As long as I, that person in that I see in the mirror is pleased with how he's improving or what he's doing to better his life, that's what I'm going to go with. And that's how I always looked at everything. I love it. I love it. I mean, one of the, I actually mentioned to you before we got started that I had a professor on that studies resilience. And one of the things we talked about in being resilient and coming back from challenges and stresses is feeling like you have control of your life, feeling like you're making your own decisions, feeling like you have autonomy. Once you start feeling like I'm out of control or I don't have control or I'm a victim in this situation or have it <laughs> seeing life through the lens of a victim, yeah. it becomes much more difficult to be resilient. So I'm already seeing a tie there between yeah. the conversation I had a couple of weeks ago and what I'm hearing from you. Let's get a little bit into your athletic story here, because I don't know if this is right or wrong, but as I understand it, you grew into your leaping ability a little bit later in life. Is that true? Would you say that you were a standout athlete as a young child, or did that come as you grew into high school and even later in high school? Well, I think the the athleticism and all of that was there, but I was just small. Going into high school, I was 5'4", 88 pounds. Wow, 88 pounds. Uh, my senior year, I was 5'10", 125 pounds. 
The first time I ever dunked a basketball was my junior year, and I couldn't do it consistently. I could do it with one hand. Then my senior year, I could, you know, I got a couple of dunks in the game, break away. I could do it one hand, no problem. And then after basketball season, I went out for track, and I didn't train. I didn't lift weights. My practice consisted of me sitting on the high jump pit watching everybody else train, practice. I would take a few jumps here and there, but, you know, I didn't have a coach showing me anything about the high jump or giving me a workout back then. Hey, do this. So I just go out there and hang out. (laughs) I want to ask you about that because when I'm doing research on you, Charles, your work ethic is now legendary. It's like part of the lore of Charles Austin is your work ethic. What you're describing as a young man is not that same work ethic. So I don't want to jump too far ahead (laughs) in your story because we're going to methodically walk through it. But you didn't have that work ethic growing up that you developed that later in life? Well, the work ethic was there. I just didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do, you know. Uh, And so the coach didn't say anything to me. You got to understand also, um, when I went out for the track team, originally the coach told me, no, I couldn't jump. And Robert Blackman, classmate who went on to play with the Seattle Seahawks and Indianapolis Colts, he was our star athlete. And he was like, man, hold on. Let me go in and talk to him. And he went in and talked to him. And, you know, he said, if I could jump six feet, he'll let me on the team. I jumped six feet in my jeans and basketball shoes right then and there. And he left, led me on the team. But he never gave me a workout or said, do this or do that. He was like, oh, just go down. I bet he didn't have a clue. He didn't have a clue. Exactly. Maybe you had a football coach, but you don't don't have a high jump coach. You don't have a high jump coach. Give me some perspective. You said that by the end of that year, you were jumping 6'11". Yeah. Where does that rank in high school jumping ability? I don't even know. Is that state? Qualifying state? Record? I didn't know. I didn't make it to state. I okay. made it to regional, but that was one of the top jumps. It definitely in the top ten easily that year. Enough to uh, get a look from the smaller that, yeah, schools, now, but maybe now, not the University of yeah, Texas exactly. and the LSU. None of the, the none of the major universities looked at those it. guys were jumping over seven feet at the time. It was a few, a okay. few jumping up, not many. It was a few during the time jumping over seven feet. But I think with me, what it was, I was an unknown. I just came out that year out of nowhere, and I was little. I say 5'10", 120 pounds, 120, 25 pounds. It's like, man, this little skinny dude, you know. And that has always been the thing with coaches, my size. But like I said, the athleticism and, and competitiveness that was always there. How do, never, you, how do you think that comment about your size, which happened even into your professional career, how do you think that affected your mentality? Do you think it put a bit of a chip on your shoulder? The fact that maybe you don't believe in me, did that come into play? No, not at all. No. I don't care what other people, like I say, outside and factors don't never influence me, never drives me. Like everyone say, like they talk about Jordan, he creates these things in his head and that drives him. What drives me is Charles, what I want to accomplish. <laughs> That's it. That's rare, man. Yeah, I've been yeah, doing man. this for a little while with professional athletes, <laughs> yeah. Olympians, and to not worry about expectations is rare, man. And right. it's a gift. It's yeah. a gift. Well, you got to understand. Uh, growing up, my mom, one thing she told me, two, two things that I've always lived by. Worry about the things you can control 
Three things you can control. What you think, what you do, and what you say. <laughs> so I always kept everything internal. And the other thing she told me, whatever you do, be the best at it. Try to be the best at it. Outside, picking up trash for a living. Make sure that area you clean is the cleanest. And that has always stayed in my head. That's how I've always looked at things. I, don't, I never care about I'm, I'm going to pause for a second because one of the things I like to do, Charles, is show where different people from different backgrounds and different races overlap. My mother said the same thing to me. <laughs> she said her quote was, I don't care if you're mopping the floors or you're the CEO, give your very best and someone will notice. Right. Right. She said the exact same thing. So Van Vleck, Texas, a black man <laughs> in the 1970s yeah. heard the same thing that a white man in Austin, Texas yep. heard in the 1990s. Yeah. And I love that because I like to yeah. point out that we overlap it, it, way we more. We overlap way than more than, than people think. Absolutely. You know, I, it, it's just it's society, man. It, 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 we made it so much more difficult than what it really is. Yeah, you know, there's similarities regardless. You you know, if we can just look at things for what they are, you know, we're we're human. Period. And people will see there's not much difference. Well when when you <laughs> said that, my mom pictures in my head because I hear her saying that to yeah. me over and over again, just like you probably hear it in your head. And it just makes me smile on the inside and outside. Cause now I tell my five-year-old that Same I say, I don't thing. care if you're sweeping the floors, you're the CEO, give your best and someone will notice. Yeah. I say yeah. the same thing. And I, I love that. So I had to linger there yeah. for a second. Yeah. Let's move into Texas state. I understand the first couple of years were a challenge. They were a struggle. Why were they, why were they so challenging? Well, let me, let me back up real quick. Even what you're saying, uh, give your best and someone will notice. I took it a step further. I said, give my best and I can feel good about who I am. Like I said, you kept it on the internet. I, 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 I love it. I love it. I, I like see if somebody if someone noticed, great. If they didn't, at least I know that I put myself out there. I tried my hardest. And I learned more well about said. myself. So well said. I, I've learned. I'm, I'm growing. So that that's how I always looked at that. Uh, I'm not worried about this person noticing. I, I can't control them. But if I focus on Charles and drive myself, push, challenge myself to be the best I can, well, I'm going to learn a lot about me. I'm going to grow and I'm going to be stronger mentally. And, and I'm going to get where I want to be. So I'm sorry. No, <laughs> that's per man. We're getting to where I like to take these conversations yeah. way before I thought we would. And that makes yeah. for a beautiful conversation, which is all I really care about. So coming into Texas State, I read that the first couple of years were a struggle in the classroom, socially, maybe even athletically. Why was that a challenge? What are the what are the obstacles you ran into coming to San Marcos? <laughs> well, it, it, the struggle I created the struggle. It wasn't a struggle I created it because I, I didn't know much about college, cost and all that. I'm from Van Vleck, you know. I graduated with sixty seven kids in my class, country boy. So I didn't know the cost of college when McNeese offered me a full scholarship. I didn't know what that cost. I didn't know what that entailed. So when I got to Texas State, Coach Light gave me $450 a semester in books. I just like Texas State, and it was close to home. So I didn't know. 
And then when I got here, I was went out to the track and started training and all of that. Me and some of the other guys, we were all just hanging out, talking about scholarships. And they were like, hey, yeah, I get this check every month for 1100 I get this check for 1300 And I'm just sitting there. I'm struggling. Why are you getting money? So they got to me and like, hey, what, what's your scholarship? Like $450 in books a semester. And they all fell out laughing. Like, are you kidding me? And you, you know? start getting a little bitter? And bitter? I was pissed. Because yeah. these guys couldn't come close to beating me whatsoever. So that really disturbed me. And I talked to the coach about it. And he was like, well, you know, uh, this is what I thought you deserved. And this is what I'm going to give you. And I was like, okay, well, what's, <laughs> how do they deserve more? When they can't, they they can't beat me. So that's when the problem started. I got in my feelings instead of staying focused and being appreciative of the blessing to just be in college and having a chance. I started, hey, I deserve this. I know you don't. You deserve what you're offered, and you make the most of it. Broke the college record, the school record that year. And what year was this? My freshman year. Came in, jumped seven feet, a half inch or something like that. Broke the school record. And I'm thinking, okay, he'll give me a better scholarship. Sophomore year, he gave me $750 a semester in books. And now I'm pissed. So I stopped going to practice. I stopped going to class. You know, I would skip and go and play basketball with the basketball team. I'm like, I'll just go play basketball. You know, so I'm just lost at this point. And, and plus, being at Texas State at the time, and I have to admit, I'm from the country, and now I'm in a strange place. I'm in a classroom. I'm the only black person in the class. So I'm just like, what in the world? You know, I'm, I'm having all of these emotions and, and just feel not, I wouldn't say feeling sorry for myself. I'm just, I'm just angry for whatever reason. I'm, uh, I, I don't even think, honestly, I don't think I was angry. I think I was just more confused. It was different. You know, I'm, I was, I'm hearing I'm, maybe a bit, you just felt a bit lost. lost like you didn't, lost. you always didn't had, know, a, you yeah. had a path to that point and now you're yeah. going, where's my path? Yeah. I, I couldn't figure it out. And, I couldn't, I couldn't put things together. And so after my sophomore year, we had our exit interview with the coaches and you know, I went in and I, I voiced how I felt. And he was like, okay, look at here, Charles. You have one or two things you can do. You can come back and enroll in classes for the summer. I read you had flunked out at this point. Yeah, right? I was I was right there. Okay. Yeah, and he's like, uh, you can come back. I can pay for your summer school. You can come back and get your grades because you made really good grades out of high school. I know you're just being lazy. He's like, you can come here, you can train this summer and get serious, or you can go to Van Vleck. He's like, regardless, whether you're here or not, I'm still going to be the coach. I'm still going to get my check every month, and it is what it is. That's the best thing he could have told me. And so I got up and enrolled me in summer school because I already started processing everything. It's like, okay, he's the one in control. How do I gain control now? How do I flip things around? I become really good 
now he's going to want me. He's going to need me. Enrolled in summer school, really focused on my grades. Got up here, started lifting weights, started training hard, just with the focus. Let me get this going because, Charles, you're being selfish. You're being unappreciative. God bless you with this opportunity, and you're messing it up. You're getting out of yourself. Instead of staying within, you're starting to focus on everything out here. You're not Charles now. And so basically, I just dialed it back in and like, okay, how do you want this to come, Charles? How do you want, what do you want? I, I want to be good. I want to get my degree. Okay, make it happen. And so that year, I started training. I started working, started focusing on Charles. What does Charles need to do to put himself in position to have success? That year, I jumped seven five consistently, got second at the NCAA championship. Well, you know what it sounds like to me, Charles, is for a couple of years, you lost that mentality we talked about. Exactly. That mentality that I, was I control my destiny. Yes, yes. And I'll say this is that probably makes a lot of sense. You're in a new environment. You're the only black guy in the class. People don't talk like you. They don't look like you. Probably don't even have a lot of people in positions of influence that look like you. And you lost that confidence or whatever you want to yeah, call it. Yeah, the confidence. That's, that's you're right. But you I, found I wasn't it again. As confidence. I wasn't as confident. Like I say, I, after that meeting, I dialed things. That, put, that gave me that reality check that I needed to get back to Charles. And so I just started focusing, okay, this is what I want to accomplish. This is what this year I, I want to accomplish. I want to get to NCAA championship. I want to win conference. I want to do this, this, this. And so I just started going after it. And that year, I got second at the NCAA championship behind Hollis. It's like, man, this is feel, this feels good. This is what I'm talking about. And that's your junior year. And then <laughs> that's I'm fast my forward year. to your senior year. You come back and you win the 1990 oh, Collegiate I, National that, Championship. That senior year, I locked in. I was like, whoa, there's something confidence. here. There's something here. And now I'm in my element. Everything was about me. Being it around people didn't bother me. I'm one of those really quiet, don't like to talk. And uh, so nothing bothered me because I was so ingrained in what I wanted to accomplish. I had a taste of it. And it's like, man, Charles, you, you didn't really put all everything into it. You were just kind of piecing it together. What if you dial it up even further? What's going to happen? And next year, I jumped seven, eight and a half. And one NCs, second highest jump by a collegiate athlete at the time. Well, it sounds like in 1990, <laughs> you started to put the pieces together and become yes. the Charles Austin that exactly. we know today. Yeah. Let's fast forward into professional track and field. 1991, you come out of college prior to the world championships in 91. Mm. What were your expectations in professional track and field? Were you still on an all-time high confidence, did you believe you were one of the best high jumpers in the United States at that point? Oh, yeah, most definitely. I just was getting started. Yeah. <laughs> Once I committed myself, I started looking at what the top jumpers were jumping, studying them, researching them. It's like, if I'm going to do this, I have to know what I'm dealing with. And so I started really trying to be a, a student of the event and, and really trained to give myself the best opportunity to get to that next next level. So after winning NCs, 
jumping seven, eight and a half. And that year I came close to jumping seven, ten and a half, breaking the American record. So I had no doubt. I had all the confidence in the world that I'm there. Well, let's talk about that American record. And so in 1991, 30 years ago, you break the American world record at what, seven, ten, and three seven, fourths. Well, seven, ten and a half. In seven, Zurich, ten and a half. Right. Uh-huh. And you win the nineteen ninety one world champion. World You're the best high jumper in the yeah. world. Well, and set the championship record there too. So I'm like, it's a record that's held for thirty years. You're a world champion. What does that success do to your confidence? Did it change the way you approached meets or how you walked into a meet? No. Well, it made me hungrier. Really? I wanted more. Explain that. I wanted more. I, I knew, I, like I said, I knew I was just getting started. I didn't know what I was doing, really. I was just getting started. And see, during that time in 1991, that fall, I had Coach Light from the fall, August till February. Coach Light was writing my workouts up for me. He was at LSU at this time. He left Texas State and went to LSU. And then in February, March, I took control of my own training. I started writing my workouts up and everything on my own. And I could just tell I was getting there. You know, I felt just like I felt in control. Well, let's go to 92, Barcelona Olympics. At this point, I assume you've got to be the American favorite to win the gold medal. However, I understand you were a long way from healthy. What do you remember about that run-up? Did you know you were unhealthy? Yeah. Well, I tore my patellar tendon in 1990, my first indoor meet in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And did nothing about it? You just uh, kept I, jumping? They kept telling me it was tendonitis, but I knew it was more because this thing hurt. It hurt really bad when I would train, when I would jump. It hurt really bad. And so I just kept jumping on it. 1990, then 91. And then when 92 rolled around, uh, I wasn't even going to jump. I wasn't even going to. And the qualifiers? I wasn't even going to go to the Olympic trials because it was hurting so bad. At the last minute, I decided I was there in New Orleans and I decided to jump. It's like, oh, let me just see if I can make the team. Went out, took three jumps, made the team. Jumped 7-7. Seven, seven, that put me in second at the time. So I just quit. So I was like, I'm in. So was there a question on whether or not you were going to get to go to the Olympics even after making the team? I wasn't going to go. I wasn't. I was still undecided about going, even though I made the team, because the knee was just giving me a lot of problems. And, and I didn't want to go there, really, and lose, because I just won the world championship. So I knew, I was like, I can beat these guys, no problem, especially if my knee felt better. You know, yeah, it was hurting last year, but... It was more manageable this year. It's like, oh, my God, you know, what is going on? But while sitting home, I started thinking about later on. This is my first Olympics. I need to feel what it's like. Everybody is telling me, you know, it's a whole different feeling. You know, this is the greatest competition. This is the highest competition on the planet. There's nothing higher. So the energy and the electricity and all of that is going to be different. So at the last minute, I was like, okay, let's just go and, and fill it out. See what it's about. Because 96 is here in the U.S. and I'll be ready for that one. I want to ask you about Barcelona one more time. So you 
make the Olympic team on a knee that come to find out your patella tendon's falling apart. And then you finish eighth at the Olympics. Now, now I see you guys didn't see that, but he just rolled his eyes. He's unhappy with that. <laughs> with the benefit of hindsight, you finish eighth in the world on a knee that was literally falling apart on the inside. That's an amazing accomplishment. Did it feel like that at the time when you were leaving Barcelona? What was your mentality? I was disappointed in myself. I was very angry because I felt if I would have went in with a different mindset, I went in knowing in my head, I'm hurt, I'm hurt. But in 91, I was hurt. But I was like, okay, let's just make it happen. Do what we need to do to make it happen. Here, I'm thinking, man, this thing is hurting. I'm scared if I'm, I'm going to do something where I can't jump again. So all of that was going through my mind, and I finished the competition. So if I just went in with a better mindset, who knows what would have happened? I went in with a crippled mindset. You see what I mean? No, I think that's how all of us athletes <laughs> yeah. think. I mean, but I, that's yeah. that's not I was that that's not who I am. But I also think <laughs> physiologically, your knee was in worse shape in '92 than it was '91. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's getting worse and worse and worse. Which we'll we'll get to. Go ahead. But but the same thing. I was there. Yeah, if you're going to be there. Uh, I'm there. <laughs> I got to tell I you a funny story. So my wife and I are opposite. We, she said one time, she said, I was I was raised, it's not whether we win or lose, it's how to play, oh, play the game. And she said, you know, you were raised, if we're going to be here, we might as well win this damn thing. Hey, I'm a, <laughs> hey if I have, hey, that's one thing. If I can finish the competition, I'm suppo- in my head, I'm supposed to win, period. If I'm there, I'm supposed to win. And that that's just who I am. So I was I was really disappointed. I was really disappointed because I didn't walk away crippled. I didn't walk away hurt any more than what I was when I first started. So I said, hey, you should have just laid it out on the line instead of protecting yourself. Good enough's not good enough. Good enough. It could have yeah, been great. Yeah. yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I feel you. Well, let's you let's go. You say you didn't walk away crippled. I'm, we're gonna get into whether or not that's true. In 1993. You have major knee surgery. It's finally enough's enough. Half your patella tendon had to be removed. Doctors told you you'll never jump again. I want to know when you're sitting in that office and your career, like you said, really hadn't even had a chance to start. And doctors say, it's over. You're never going to jump again. What was your, your mindset in that moment? Initially, I was hurt. I felt lost again. Man, just when I started to like this, it, because it before it was like just something to do. What what I enjoyed more about it, it was the competition. It wasn't just a high jump. It was an opportunity to compete against other people and see what I'm made of. That's what we still miss now. That, that's what I love. That's what you I know? still and miss now. And it just so happened the high jump gave me, it was the avenue that I was in. So when they told me, the four different doctors came back and told me, Hey, your career is over. I cried, felt bad, but that lasted, I won't even say 24 hours. <laughs> uh, the next day, you know, I'm like, okay, let's figure this out. I respect their opinion, but they don't know me. Hey, they, you know, I hear their doctors and all of that, but how do they know what my the rest of my tendon can handle. 
So uh, I'm not I'm not trying to hear that. Do you give me a one percent chance of making something happen, especially if that's what I want to do? I bet on myself any day. You know what we say a lot on this podcast is if you don't make space for one percent, that's where greatness is. Greatness is the one percent. And if you don't make space for unlikely outcomes, there is no greatness. And those that listen to this podcast a lot, a lot are going to roll their eyes Mm because I say it all the time. But that's the truth: is you have to make space for that unlikely outcome. Because if you don't believe, that's where the greatness is. Yeah, and you look. I have a poster, and that's what I've always said: that you give me a one percent chance. That's all I need, period. You know, yeah, I'm hurt. They took my tendon, but let's see. Here's my question for you. You chose to go at this rehab. My understanding is no coach, no trainer, no physio, all on your own. Yes, at home. Explain that decision to me that I, I'm going to take this on on my own. Well, like I was saying, I have been training myself since February, March of 91. So I know my body better than anyone. You don't know how I feel. I know how I feel. I know what works for me. I have a better understanding of areas that I can improve on that's going to give me a better chance. So it's like, you know, Dr. DeLee's like, hey, you can come do your rehab here. I was like, nah, I'll do it at home. Got all my resistance bands and tied it to the couch or door or stepped on it. And just do it, started doing strengthening exercises while watching television all throughout the day. Just doing little stuff. Next thing you know, it's like, man, this is feeling pretty good. Within two weeks, I was walking around normal. And I remember, like Dr. DeLee, he would call and check on me. And after the two weeks, he's like, what are you doing? You still on your crutches? I was like, no, I'm not on crutches. He was mad. He's like, get to my office right now got in the car, drove to San Antonio, walked in, and he's like, where are your crutches? I was like, I told you, I don't need any crutches. <laughs> and so he put me through all these different movements and pushing on it and bending my leg. It's like, does any of this hurt? It's like, no. It's like, okay, go home and keep doing what, you, what you're doing. See, I'm a guy who, <laughs> who thrives on a team, even in business. Like, I, I love to be in a conference room with five or six people. We could be arguing with one each other. As long as everyone's engaged and their hair's on fire, I thrive in that environment. Are you someone that thrives kind of being on your own? Being, I mean, you, you were in an event where it's kind of on your own. Or did you did you have some team you were training with or a group of guys? Or? No, that team is me. Okay. You know? That's different than my background and, in yours, baseball well, it, to, it, to high jump, I guess. Like I say, um, I, I control Charles, and, and that's all I need. I'm in control of me. If I want something, I figure it out. I study. I, I you know, take those steps. I pay attention to detail until I get to where I want to be, and that's all I did. You know, I started watching video. I started seeking out asking questions okay when you're running like going to meets i would always sit back and pay attention to how athletes were running how they were moving and stuff like that because it's like i know i'm not technically correct with the way i jump and run so i need to implement this into my training and the way i do things to give myself the best opportunity and so that's all I started doing. How long until you you knew you were coming back and you were uh, going to surpass I had um, surgery July 7th of 1993. 
by December, I jumped 610 from five steps. That's unreal. 94, I jumped 77, which was the 11th highest jump in the world. 95, came back, jumped 78, which was the fifth highest in the world. So back in December of 93, I was like, it's, a, it's, it's done. You tell me I'll never jump seven feet again? Oh, I jumped 610 for five steps real easy. Six so, months later. Yeah, yeah five months, months later. Yeah. And so, <laughs> so at that point, I was like, okay, I'm done. I know. And so I just started going, going, you know, like training hard. And there was times where the knee would start hurting and I would get scared. It's like, oh, let me back off, you know. But it's like, you know, keep, don't worry. I kept fighting that, fighting that negativity. Like, let's keep going. Pay attention. If, if a certain movement, understand what's the difference between pain that hurts and pain that, you know, just from training. Are you hurt or are you injured? Yeah. That's what my coaches <laughs> used to say, yeah. So I, I got to the point where I can distinguish. And then at that time, by that time, I was so in tune with my body. You know, it was it was just ridiculous. I could honestly, you know, I could tell if I gained a pound or two. I was just so locked in, dialed in that I just knew everything about this whole this body from head to toe. I could tell if something was out of place. The weirdest thing, but uh, I guess it was just that level of focus and determination that just put me in a different headspace than I've ever been before. It sounds like coming into 96 in the Olympics, you were supremely confident. What do you think the rest of the track world was thinking? Did they know you were back at this point? Uh, that in 96 when I came out, and like, and just to let you know, after the 95 season, my mind said, these guys are not going to beat me next year. <laughs> because now... I'm going to train, and one or two things going to happen. I'm going to tear my knee up to the where I can't jump ever again, for real, or I'm going to win next year. I'm going to just, I'm going to have an amazing year, and the rest of my career is going to be really nice. And the rest of the world knew you were coming. Oh, yeah. That 96 came in. I jumped indoors. I set a personal best, seven, eight, and three quarters in Poland. Then I came back and won my first indoor national championship with seven nine and a quarter i had no doubt i had no doubt that uh, hey i'm winning this well let's go to the olympics so this is maybe an unfair term but you cruised through the the qualifying rounds at the olympics pretty easy and then you go into the final and continue to cruise but the gold medal comes down to one jump you had missed your first two jumps if i'm correct and you're down to one jump. What are your thoughts going into that final jump, knowing I either make this or I lose out on gold? Well, at that point, I was pissed at myself. I was mad because my whole mindset, it wasn't just on winning the Olympics. I wanted to break the world record. I came close in 91, and now I'm feeling really good. I'm not hurting. I should get this record, and I want to get it here at the Olympics. The night before the final, I got the sheet and saw the height progression, and I picked the heights that I was going to jump at. And I said, okay, for you to break the world record, 
you're going to have to stay clean through seven, nine and a quarter. You can't afford to miss because I'm, I'm short compared to these other guys. And I'm a power jumper. I rely more on my strength and power. That takes a lot out of my body each jump. So it's like I need to stay clean and conserve as much energy as I can. Jump as little as possible. Little, little as up possible. Up okay. And so we got to seven, nine and a quarter. And my first attempt over it and just relaxed too soon and pulled it off with my heel. It's like, okay, that's just one jump. I'm good. I'm still feeling good. Next one, I'll get it. The next jump, Partica went right before me. And he had this massive jump. Is that the Polish dude? The Polish. Oh, I watched it. That was like, he would have uh, cleared eight, two, what? three, probably. Uh, sick. I'm just sitting there looking at it like, oh boy. Now we're getting ready to compete. Let's get it. The crowd was going crazy. They kept showing it on the Jumbotron and all of that. And it's like, okay, let me see. Y'all going crazy over here. Now let me show you. I've just been relaxed this time. Now let me show you what I can do. Stupid. Got out of Charles' space and started. Worrying about outside expectations. There what you other go. people are thinking. <laughs> I, I like when we, there when we you come go. back to the same there concept. There you go. And it, just like always, anytime I go outside of Charles, I have problems. And next thing you know, missed again. I'm like, are you kidding they putting the bar up, and uh, I'm sitting in my chair. It's like, Charles, why are you getting in your way? You keep doing this. You know you know, you can't focus on outside. You got to stay inside. They put the bar up, and I was like, I'm not going to jump. I'm going to pass to the next height because I knew I could clear it. I had no doubt. I, I knew without a doubt. Just strength alone, I could clear it. They're looking at me, the officials, like, you're going to pass? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to pass my last jump to 710. I can clear that really Move easy. that bar up and get my heels up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Move it up. Charles, finish your jump. Don't relax. Finish your jump. Get over everything over the bar and don't relax until you hit the mat. That's all I told myself. So I, I had no doubt. And so I just had to let the other guys go. Like I told you, I watched this twice this weekend on YouTube, and you hit this Olympic record there. You come up off the mat, your arms go back in that iconic pose, and you start just screaming at the crowd. <laughs> I tell you what, man, you had me ready to run through a brick wall three days ago. My wife's like, what are you watching? I'm like, I'm watching Charles beat this Polish dude's ass is what I'm watching, and I'm getting hyped. What, what was that feeling like, man? Well... It was the ultimate test of myself and my ability. I, I told myself, this is what I'm capable of doing. It's like, okay, yeah, I, I spent a lot of time talking and competing in my own head. It's like, oh, you say you're, you're that good? Let's see. I hear you talking. It's like, okay, I'm going to show you. It was the ultimate test for me because I felt in my heart and mind, I knew this is who I am. This is this is easy for me. This other person, hey man, you see that bar seven ten? That's really high. You got one jump. You got a lot of pressure. Pressure? Are you serious? What is pressure? It's pressure to me. <laughs> so it was back and forth. And so when I got out of my, they called my name for me to go. 
<laughs> like, man, serious? Sit over there and let me show you. My mindset is what I feel has always gave me the advantage over those guys. You can't put pressure on me. I can only put pressure on myself. Nothing you can do is going to affect me. I'm going to tell you again, that's rare. I mean, pressure cripples a lot of people. You're the Olympic champion now. I didn't find a whole lot between 97 and 2000. Talk about the life of an Olympic champion high jumper. I mean, is it glamorous? Are you still kind of grinding it out once you leave the Olympics? Kind of back to meets, figuring yeah, out what Back to meets. Uh, you know, I came back indoors. Funny thing. I came back indoors, won the in indoor world championship in 97. Messed up. I went to Canada. It was the head-to-head -head challenge, you know, when Michael and Donovan had that. I remember that. I went there. They had this thin layer of rubber that we jumped on, just on concrete. And my knee started hurting again. <laughs> it, it wasn't bad, but it's like, ah, this is back, you know. Uh, I took Soto. It was supposed to be me and Soto and if uh, we broke the world record, they were going to give us a million dollars. This is Javier, Javier Sotomayor, uh -huh. yeah, who's the, who's yeah. the world the record, record holder. Yeah. And he didn't come, and so they replaced him with Schoberg. So that was a big letdown because I was ready. I Did was you dominant. have a rivalry with him? Was there? What was your thoughts on him? Soto's great. Real cool guy. Real cool guy. But uh, no, I didn't worry about Soto. I've, in my head... I just you need to stay healthy. If you Once catch again, me, that's you not that's not what motivated you. You, you yeah. keep me healthy, I'm good. I'll put myself up against any of you guys. I've shown you. You know, I just need to have everything basically not hurting. And so from 97 to 2000, you started battling some injuries a little no, bit again? Well, no, uh, 97, you know, after that meet in Canada, the knee started hurting a little bit, and it stayed there throughout 97. And then 98, there wasn't very many meets, but I came back and won the World Cup Championship in South Africa. Uh, and then 99, another down year, not very many meets out there, but I, uh, I got bronze at the 1999 Indoor World Championships. In 2000, I'm... At that point, I'm trying to decide, you know, what I was going to do next. At this know? point, you're what, 33 years old? Somewhere up in there. And yeah. I, I yeah. don't know um, a lot about high jump, but I'm guessing it's a young man's game. Yeah, but yeah, but even then I was, you know, I didn't have the fire that I did in 96 and 97 in those years, 98, because it, it was a long career. And so I'm just trying to hang on, trying to figure out my next step. What am I going to do after 2000? Going there, I, I felt really good going into the meet. This being the Olympics or the qualifiers? Olympics. You know, okay. I won the Olympics. And for our listeners, so yeah. Charles qualifies again for the 2000 yeah. Sydney Olympics, yeah, first third Olympics. Yeah, and so going in, yeah, go yeah. there. Where, what were okay. you thinking going in? In 2000, when we went to the Olympic trials, <laughs> funny thing, my best jump going into the Olympic trials that year, I think, was maybe 7'5". Like I say, I'm just trying to figure it out. And, and I'm, I'm better when it's pressure. The bigger the meat, the more the pressure, the better I am. And so I go to the Olympic trials and win that with 7'7". 
once I got to Sydney, that was more of another mental letdown more than anything. Because I went in, I was jumping just as high in practice in Sydney as I was in Atlanta. Because I had dialed back in. <laughs> what happened there, uh, this is the stupidest thing in the world. They give us shoes. You know, I've been getting shoes from companies since 1991. And I like to wear a new pair of shoes for every meet. And so I got these new pair of shoes, two new pair of shoes. And, you know, I had been getting them for years. Got these shoes and uh, looked at them. Okay, 11 and a half. You know, like always, didn't think about it. <laughs> Threw them in my bag. Went to the qualification round. Tried to put one pair on. Couldn't get my foot in the shoe. And I'm sitting there like, are you nervous? What, what is going on? Looked at the shoe, 11 and a half. Tried to put it on again. I could not get my feet in that shoe. And either one of them. So it's like, okay, I got the other pair. Went to my bag, got the other pair. And I could barely get my feet in those shoes. <laughs> so I made the first height. Oh, when I would plant, it felt like someone had had a hammer on my toes. <laughs> it was hurting so bad. And so the next jump, I passed. I tried seven, four and a quarter with those shoes on, and it it just was too much. And there's just no way no, to go I, to the I, team and get another no, pair. No, you're nothing. done. Once you're on the apron, once you're in the, you're done. And I had my old shoes back at the village, but it's too late. I'm sitting there, I'm looking around, trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And you have to wear the same brand that you fill out on the form. And so I'm looking around, looking around, and I noticed Ben Challenger from England. He wore the same brand. And I went over to him and was like, hey, man, let me wear your shoes. If I can just get through this qualification round, I'll win the Olympics and I'll take very good care of you. Because everybody knew. All the athletes knew I was having trouble with the shoes. And he's like, okay, take, you're going to take care of me. I was like, most definitely. And I was like, let me just, I just need to get through the qualification and, and make the final. So my last jump, I was over it, sitting there looking at the bar, like, oh, thank you. Started going to get off the mat. The bar fell. <laughs> Didn't make it to the final. And you were using the British gentleman's yeah. shoes. I wore size 11 and a half. He wore size 14. So it was just, it was just. It it's was hard just, to envision that kind of screw up at the Olympics, but yeah. I bet someone learned a lesson from so you and said, learned, that's never going to happen again to an American athlete. Well, and I took it and I was mad, you know, and had a meeting with the company and it's like, man, what happened? You guys been giving me shoes. This has never happened. And they like, we don't know. We don't know how this could have happened. But by the end of the meet, I, I took sole responsibility. I got comfortable. Uh, you know, even, yes, you have been giving me these shoes all this time. I've never had a problem. But still, I should have checked. I could have checked him. Yeah, that's called, we call that extreme ownership. I, I could have checked. What I could, did I do? Yeah, what could and I have done? The company even offered me a contract, and I was like, no, I don't want it. And so I, I, it's a learning experience. And so now... It's like, I don't care how great things are going. 
pay attention. <laughs> so I, I know you're not terribly happy with your last Olympics, but to kind of wrap up the career on a high note, you come back in 2003 at 36 years old and you win another indoor championship, right. United States indoor championship. I mean, that had to feel pretty nice. Was that kind of the cherry on the cake there or what? No. No? <laughs> I expected that. You expected it. Okay. No, no, I, I don't. Yeah. Nothing surprises me what I do because, like I say, I, I compete within. And if I say I can do something, I really believe it. So I'm not surprised. I've never been surprised at anything I've accomplished because in my head, I'm supposed to do it. If I try and give my all, I'm supposed to make it happen. Yeah, I tell people <laughs> that athletes, when I was an athlete, I call it internal arrogance. It doesn't mean you have to be arrogant externally. But we talked about when we were at Rice, we were the number one team in the country. And it didn't matter who we were playing. We're, we're going to win and we're supposed to win. And that internal arrogance, if you don't have that for, a, I'm going to use my background of baseball. If you step in the batter's box and you're questioning whether or not you're better than that pitcher, it's over with. It's over with. It's over it's with. Over you with. better be arrogant yeah. and you yeah. better, you better be telling yourself you're better than, yeah. and you better not just be telling, you better be believing. <laughs> you believe it. it. You and have to I, believe I had yeah. to do that because I didn't have the physical gifts. So my, if I was going in there mentally weak, it wasn't happening. So I feel you there, even at 36 years old. But I still think with the benefit of hindsight, 36-year-old man out jumping 24, 25-year-olds is an impressive feat and kind of goes to your longevity. Well, it's... I guess. I don't... I, <laughs> I just, like I say with me, that's just how, you know, that's what's supposed to happen. I, so... Well, let's wrap it up here, Charles. You've been very generous with your time. When you look back and you can take this answer it from a personal perspective, a professional perspective, on or off the track. When you look back at your life to this point, what, what are you most proud of? When I look back, I'm most proud of having the mindset that I have because without that, I wouldn't have accomplished half the stuff that I've accomplished. I'm happy that I was able to give my all and prove to myself that I'm okay. I can make some things happen. And I know what it feels like to give my all and push myself to make things happen. I give my all, I focus on that, and I learn and I grow. Yeah, but I had some Olympics and all of that, but like I say, that don't surprise me. That that wasn't never a surprise. I don't. That was supposed to happen. <laughs> well, I think that's a lesson for young people: is when you ask a guy like Charles Austin what he's most proud of, the gold medal doesn't even come into your head. That's something that I hear a lot from great athletes: is it's not the accomplishment at the end of the day. The accomplishment is not the story. No, the, exactly. You know, it's the it's the journey, the growth, learning more about yourself. That's what I'm proud of because it helped me to grow. And that has translated to what I'm doing now in my life, my business. And, and so, yeah, that's what I'm most proud of with my life is being able to stay on task, you know, even and recognize when I'm getting off path to reel myself back in, have the worth all to like, hey, dude, what, what, what are you doing? <laughs> Pay attention accomplishments i don't i don't that doesn't that's a byproduct of what's really important and it's not and it's not impressive to me 
Kelsey in my head, but that's supposed to happen. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. I think it's a great lesson for young people. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your honesty, and I appreciate you going there with me. Hey, thanks, man. I enjoyed it, and, um, you know, this is great. Hopefully it's something that can help others, especially younger people, and give them that confidence in themselves. Get them to believe in themselves, you know. Don't worry about what everyone else thinks of you and this and that. Think about you and what you want for your life and go at it. Give your all to make it happen. One or two things are going to happen. You're going to make it happen and you're going to grow from it. You give your all, it's going to happen and you're going to grow. If it doesn't, who cares? You try try it your hardest. Love it, man. Thank you, Charles Austin. Okay. Appreciate it. Enjoyed it.